Welcome to the Digital PM Podcast, where we go beyond theory to give expert PM advice for leading digital projects better. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Ben Aston, founder of the Digital Project Manager. I wonder if you're familiar with this classic project management debacle where you inherit a project from a business development team and for some reason, some strange reason, the budget that's been assigned to the project doesn't seem to have any relationship at all to the work being done. Well, it happens all the time, right? And it's incredibly stressful for the project manager, for the team delivering the work, and then ultimately the client who more often than not ends up being disappointed with the work that's delivered. This episode is sponsored by Resource Guru, the resource scheduling tool used by teams at companies like Apple, Ogilvy, Deloitte, and Publicis. DPM listeners can get 20% off for the lifetime of their accounts with the coupon code DPM2018. Learn more at resourceguru.io forward slash DPM. So today we're talking about a better way to the contracting madness that so many of us struggle with. And really, I think this is a conversation that goes really beyond project management. It's a bigger conversation. It's kind of a conversation that's this crossover between project management and new business, between contracting and operations. And really, we've got to find a better way. So if you're familiar at all with the kind of contracting and statement of work struggles that I just mentioned, then you're going to love today's show, which is really all about a different engagement model. So keep listening to discover how you can prevent a whole world of pain trying to de-scope projects before they've even started. My special guest today on the show is Alexa Houston from Crema. Alexa is a former DPM turned new biz gal. So she understands this challenge from the perspective of new business trying to sell and the project manager trying to deliver. So I'm looking forward to an interesting conversation. Now, Alexa is also one of our resident DPM experts at the Digital Project Manager School. So if you want to learn more from her, check out our Mastering Digital Project Management School, where she'll be making an appearance. So go to dpmschool.com. But hello and welcome, Alexa. Thanks for having me. So Alexa, tell us what is new in the world of Alexa. I believe you're about to embark on a big adventure. You know, the phrase, when it rains, it pours. <laughs> um, that usually is a, a negative thing, but there's a lot of positive things going on. So I got engaged in the last month and a half. And then a week later, my fiance's um, company offered him a new role in Phoenix. So we're moving to the desert. And as a function of that, I put a proposal together to keep my job <laughs> at Crema because I love it. And I, I'm lucky enough to say that they accepted it. So I'll be working remotely for the first time in my life. And, and we're planning a wedding. There's just a bunch of stuff. <laughs> so tell us about wedding planning then. Obviously, you know, wedding planning is project management. Have you got a wedding planner? Are you project managing this whole thing? I'm smiling so big. I, I, we ended up hiring a, a wedding coordinator and planner because we're doing it in Mexico. And we've, oh. we picked a venue that we haven't even been to in a city we've never visited. So sight unseen's a little scary. And um, we're getting married in eight months. So all those things combined, I was like, I need some help. So your risk mitigation strategy is hire a, hire a wedding planner and hope that they can do it. Seriously. And I, we actually had a first call, our first call with her last night, and she's awesome. And but being a recovering project manager myself, I've <laughs> been asking her, it's like stakeholder management. I've been asking her like, Hey, what's your preference on this process? Um, I'm seeing you're doing things this way. Is that a, a great way you want to move forward? Or is there anything we can be doing differently? So it's 
it's been a fun little balance. Yeah, I think I think project managing a project manager, like when you're a project manager yourself and you're you're hiring a project manager, I, I feel like you're always nervous, at least for the first bit where you're like, do they do they know how to do this? Because... I know. Even even yesterday, I said, hey, do you mind sending me a fully executed contract because I only have a version with my signature lines on it, and she's probably like, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that is fun. Well, good luck with the wedding planning. Thanks. And yeah, in Mexico at a place you've never been to. So uh... it'll be fine. It's a um, mango grove slash restaurant slash they have tree houses you can stay in. It's beautiful. Oh, I'm looking forward to it already. Yeah. (laughs) Cool. So tell us a bit more about um, your how your role is going to change then? I mean, you're going from a, I think this is an interesting topic thinking about, okay, how does your role change when you go from being kind of an in-house employee to then going remote? As you, for other people who are thinking, hey, I quite like the idea of being a remote worker and not having to go into the office anymore. What was your kind of strategy? Obviously you're moving. So in some ways they didn't have a choice, but what what's your strategy around kind of putting that together? And what what's your... I guess, approach for working remotely. Right. So you nailed it. I, my strategy was I'm moving no matter what, but let me list out a list of benefits to the business, why we, it would be good for me to work remotely. And I'm lucky enough. So in the last year and a half, Crema, um, more and more Crema employees have been working remotely, especially within the, la- the, the last three months. It's been like right. a very um, interesting sort of trend. Mm. So this has already been something that the business has been focusing on is how do we, how do we think about a distributed workforce? How do we think about a remote team? So I feel lucky in that manner, but I basically being in new business, I framed up the opportunities there are in a new market and why it'd be good for me to be down there, but also pointing back to the results that I've been able to achieve, you know, in our results-based culture, because while I am normally in the office, I do have the option to work remotely. So I just tried to highlight all the reasons why it's good for the business. And then I put together some sort of like communication strategy and general timeline to make sure that everyone felt comfortable with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and in addition to that, this this is kind of a plot twist. So there's one other biz, new biz dev guy in the company and we've been doing the same thing. But as we get bigger, we, we realized we needed to specialize our roles a little bit more. And so I was recommended a book called Predictable Revenue, which has been awesome. And we're basically taking that and kind of shaping it into what it means for us. So I'm going to be moving up toward the top of the funnel, more outbound sales, which is a new thing for me. So like email campaigns to companies that have no idea who we are and yeah. generate more leads. And then I'll ultimately, ideally qualify some leads and then pass those to um, Nate, who's my colleague, who will then requalify and move them through our sales pipe. Because right now we've been relying a lot on referrals and different strategies that aren't as predictable. So it's um, that's another change in my life that I'm I'm trying to lean into. Well, all change. Yeah, I think the I found the, because um, I've started working for an agency contracting that again is yeah is actually 100% remote and it's it's a very different beast working for uh, yeah a totally distributed team to yeah, yeah to, to working when you know everyone's in the office and you can just wander over trying to get hold of people i think is always a challenge it is a challenge and it's new and even this week i'm like i'm sending messages to people and i just feel like it was falling on deaf ears and i don't think it was it's just i have to frame up my conversations differently and make them more action oriented if i really do need a response or not being afraid to just like give them a call if they're available yeah. and, you know, finding ways to 
to close the communication loop. Yeah, definitely. And I think well, one thing I'm finding really helpful is just using using Zoom all the time. So like the temptation can be you just start living in Slack, but always reverting, you know, it's more disruptive. You have to put more effort into it. Um, you know, have to make sure that there's not food on your clothes. But, you know, trying try, try, try to make the effort to actually have a conversation with someone rather than just like slacking, I think can be really helpful. I agree. Um, so what have you found? I mean, you talked about this, I guess, this book that you've just been reading. But have you found anything else recently that's been making your life awesome? This is, <laughs> uh, this is a really simple example, but it truly <laughs> has helped. I bought a nice notebook off Amazon that has a like a little ribbon bookmark and it has a little slot on the side for my pen. And I've been trying to figure out my right balance between like being digital with my notes and writing some stuff down. And before I got this nice notebook, I was just using something that didn't have any marker of where I was. So all my notes were out of order and it was driving me nuts. And I feel like it's such a simple change, but it's making my life much better. I feel like I have my my stuff together the ribbon effect it's the ribbon effect yeah <laughs> no that's awesome yeah do you know what? i've started using a notebook again because i find i find like i have my my trello cards my trello system i've got evernote and then it's also yeah i've gone back to actually when i'm just trying to i just get distracted too easily so if i'm if i'm trying to think about something and write notes down i'm way more effective doing that what do you call it? Writing? Um, I'm I made way more effective writing it down, going analog, than being on my computer or phone and typing. And I'm like, oh, this thing pops up and you get distracted. Totally. I, I think that's a good example of just being self-aware, like in, in experimenting with different methods, because I use a ton of tools too. And sometimes I'm, I just get a little like tool fatigue. And so yeah. I'm trying to simplify things. Just write it down. Yeah. And then and use your ribbon. Get a ribbon notebook. Get a ribbon. We'll include a link in the transcript cool so let's talk about your article and revisit that scenario that i mentioned at the beginning that we're only all too painfully familiar with so our business team wants to sell that's as your role in business development i've just actually come off a role in business development we want to sell so in order to sell we make this big and seemingly generous offer to the client we're trying to win the work often you know the temptation is we undersell it a bit make ourselves look favorable against the competitors sometimes the idea can be well hey the first project's a loss leader which by the way i think is a terrible idea but um and sometimes it's just because it's not scoped out well enough you know we kind of think it's a bit of a long shot we tell the client hey Sure, we'll do it for 100K, but it's actually a 200K project. Now, typically, I think within agencies, what we're usually trying to sell in is retainer sometimes. That's kind of ideal. A fixed fee contract, a time and materials contract. Or I know there's been a lot of excitement about value-based contracts. But with any of these, after the client signs, the trouble often starts. And because the project gets passed to the project manager, who then gets tasked with delivering this project, but with not enough budget to do it properly. So what is the better way? Well, Alexa has written an article about a different kind of contract. And so check out the article to read more about it. But we're going to discuss that today. And it's a duration and price based contract. So could this be the solution to our contracting woes? Alexa, tell us about duration and price based contracts. How does this work? What is this thing? Yeah. So uh, disclaimer, we made up this term. It's just, it's just kind of what we arrived at a couple of years ago and it's, it's stuck, but it is, it is defined by the words in it. So we have been crafting agreements that operationally support our agile methodologies and focus on 
like the value and the results of a project rather than, you know, a fixed scope or all these specific details. So simply put, the duration is the amount of time that someone is going to be working with our team. And the price is a result of an hourly rate times the amount of time that we're working with them. And how this does differ from things you described, like a retainer or a, um, you know, fixed fee or even value base, which is so elusive and hard to do in the agency world. It's just a simpler way. And granted, there's complications to it. There's a lot of education that goes into it. But we feel like it's a way in which our clients have a definition of what they're paying for. Um, and our team doesn't have to have their hands held by a scope of work that was generated without all the facts. Mm. Even the best fixed scope contract, and there could be you know, good reasons why there is one if, if that's really well defined. But in terms of product development, oftentimes teams spend a ton of time thinking about the different you know, milestones and features that need to go into a, a certain project and they will change along the way once something gets kicked off. So we were trying yeah. to mitigate those risks and trying to avoid the scenario where we're soaking a lot of overages um, that often come with a, a more fixed fee contract. Hmm. So, so the way it works is as a new business person, what you're doing is you're selling in a, a team of five people. Uh, the team is 5K a week. So you say to the client, okay, well, that's $25,000 per week. And how do you come to a budget then? So do you then say, okay, well, we think it's going to be a four-week project, a month long, so we're going to estimate it at 100K, and that's what you try and get them to sign off on, 100K? Or do you just say, hey, well, we don't know how long this is going to last for, so it's 25K a week, please just start writing checks. How does it work? That's a good question. So without getting too in the weeds, we try to start with the smaller scope of work that might be more um, finite. So four to six weeks of like design and testing of a prototype, for example. But then we're, we're trying to encourage the idea, like you're saying, that we're just, we want to give our clients a dedicated product team. Meaning, right. you're right, like those five roles, let's say it's a QA person, a project manager, we have product strategists, and then design and development. And we say, okay, based on our experience at the end of this prototyping engagement, if you want to get to, you know, X phase or X release of your application, it's going to take about three to six months. And so we'll negotiate like how long that might be. And Mm. the idea is also that we will work up until that time. So even if we're hitting goals early, they still have access to the team to work on different aspects of the application or the product until that duration is over. And hopefully there's more opportunity for us along the way to like continue to work together, right? Because we're working off of the backlog and there's some sort of roadmap. And oftentimes we get to the end of our first duration and price contract Mm. and there's more work to be done. And that's just an easy renewal process from that point forward. Oh, we've had a great working relationship yeah. and we know there's more things on the horizon. Let's just extend this and keep working together because we've allowed ourselves to hit these these goals. Yeah. So, okay. So you kind of try and give the, the client some idea about how long the duration might be. So you, you say, okay, three to six months. And then how do you kind of manage the expectations around the client about you know, how high fidelity that thing that you produce is going to be? And how do you kind of support the client in selling that kind of up the chain on their side when, you know, they're saying to their their team internally, hey, okay, well, I need 300k to create this prototype or do the first phase of this project. We're not quite sure exactly where we'll get to, but they've told us that some, you know, usually it takes between three and six months. So we should get something done that's okay-ish. Yeah, it's a, 
It's a tough sell, I won't lie. And there's a few components to that. So one way to help frame up this idea that it is, um, it's not, they're not writing a blank check is focusing in on what their issues are with the business. You know, where are they challenged and how will this solve those issues? So getting very specific in terms of what the like return on this investment could be if we can. Right. Um, Because a lot of times clients are in a group buying scenario where we might have access to, you know, one or two people or hopefully a larger team, but more often than not, they have to sell this up the chain. And so we try to um, really focus in on our agile methodologies and pointing back to other case studies that are related. Um, That does help kind of showcase like, okay, this is the fidelity at which you can expect your product to look. And we are really focused on that quality piece. Because we've invested a lot in our develop, our product development process, and we want them to feel like they are getting an expert product team. And that is the best alternative for their challenge that they're facing. Right. And an easy way to help simplify the pricing is I sometimes I'll just stand up and start writing on a whiteboard to say, okay, well, you're going to need these five roles, and it's this hourly rate. And I'll just start writing it out in like a table format so they can see how we arrive at the price. Right. And then empower that client to say, the you will get this value out of it because you're going to be in the driver's seat making decisions about what the focus is every sprint. And we'll help you know consult you along the way and we'll provide our recommendations. But it does, mm. we do feel like this puts the client in the driver's seat to make decisions about the product, to prioritize the backlog and do all the grooming with our team along the way. So do you find that there are sometimes challenges though where the client says, hey, okay, well, you sold me in this team but they're, you know, they're just not working fast enough. They're not producing enough. We've got this great long backlog. The team just isn't really producing enough. So yeah, that, yeah. that's kind of what would scare me. Totally. And that's where you really need to lean into like scrum methodologies or agile practices, because ideally you should be releasing something the client can see within the first couple of weeks. And so we actually have an, an opposite effect where there might be some of that anxiety in the beginning. But once we get into development and they're seeing things really regularly, and some a sidebar here is that we invite them into our project management software and into Slack. And so they're seeing things kind of happen. Yeah. So it, it does take some trust to be established pretty early on. But if they're still a little bit weary, that usually subsides once they start seeing actual releases, even if it's nothing that they can quote unquote use yet, they can still mm-hmm. see it and experience it. And they can imagine sort of what this is going to be extrapolated out across the duration that we've set. Okay, so you try and cultivate some trust yeah. by by giving some transparency to the process to what's going on. So do you give them like full visibility then into like the internal channels and the tools and they can see everything that's going on? They can. We do two different Slack channels for every project because there are some things that you want to keep on the not close to the chest, but like things like report, like if you need to report some big issue and you want to yeah. kind of talk about how you want to position it. So we end up doing an internal Slack team And then we have one that we call like whatever the project name is underscore collab. And that's where all the stakeholders are. And that's where we're updating them on status very regularly. So there is a a very large level of transparency around this. Cool. And one of the things that you mentioned in your article, which I think is, again, related to trust, is like negotiating the scope along the way with your clients. So what I'm curious is to kind of understand more on is how you support the clients through that process like how do you normally we're working with a fairly unempowered client who's you know reporting up the chain to someone so do you just try and get it in higher up to so that you can have that understanding or how does that work so one assumption here is that 
in order for this to be as effective, you need to have a pretty empowered person on the client side able to make those decisions. And yeah. so there, there is some red tape that we deal with in terms of like, who's the real decision maker and how can we have access to them? And those are things that we try to unveil in the sales process. But ideally, you'll have you know a, a pretty technically minded or design minded product owner on the client side. And then we're working with them and ensuring that they not only have access to everything and can make decisions on it, but that they're um, looking at the roadmap and reprioritizing things in the backlog outside of the regular sprints, right? So like maybe a week before the sprint kickoff, they're reordering the product backlog and we're, we're kind of bolstering onto them and kind of giving our recommendations because sometimes what can happen is say we have an idea of where we're going to be, you know, two months into the project because mm. you should have a general like goal. It's not like yeah. you have no idea what you're going to build. So putting those assumptions and considerations out there are key. But say something comes up and maybe an integration um, just isn't going to be possible, or we, we ran into an issue a couple of years ago where the product we were going to license went out of business, right. there was some issue. So we, we had to turn on a dime and we had to say, okay, what are our options? And that's what I mean by negotiating the scope, because right. that wasn't a part of the plan. And we had to think on our feet. And since we weren't in a fixed scope contract, we didn't have to worry about a change order necessarily. We just said, okay, well, that sucks. How can we make this better? And we arrived at a decision as a team, and then we just moved confidently in that direction. And it was with the client's, you know, input and confidence to move forward that we were able to do that. So, see, I mean, you touched on the contract there. So, what does the statement of work look like? It's pretty simple. Um, one thing I will note is that we also had to change our MSA to support this as well. Right. You want to make sure that your, you know, the general way you're operating with your clients also matches this type of engagement. So we retooled that a little bit, and then we really keep it simple. If you look at the article, I provide some screenshots from. We use PandaDoc to deliver our contracts, which is a great tool. But we keep it very high level and focused in on what are the business objectives, what is the path to realize those objectives. So that's where I do. I want to make sure people are clear, like, please have a picture of what you're building right. and link off to user stories if you have them or link off to, you know, a prototype or some sort of design if you have those assets, because that will, again, help to paint the picture for people, you know, both directly in the project, um, those stakeholders or outside of those. And then we put a table together that lists out what those resources are, what their hourly or their weekly rate is and for how long they're going to be on the project. And there's, you know, there's additional things that we'll put in there, additional clauses based on, you know, whether they need um, off, you know, non-business hours support or things like that. Like we can definitely make it fit the client needs, but in general, it's, it's pretty straightforward. And this was a change for us because we used to provide contracts that were like eight or nine pages long and no one was reading them and yeah. it just wasn't really working. And so we tried to simplify and make sure that our clients are aware of what they're buying before they sign. And yeah. if it goes well, the paperwork just kind of gets out of the way. Like you need to have that signed and you need to have a shared understanding. But if you're doing this well, you can just kind of forget about the contract because you're going to be focusing in yes. on each sprint the way you need to be. So, do you, I mean, you talked about, you know, ideally you're starting with some user stories or a picture or an idea. I mean, it, it sounds like, does, does this mean then that you're investing more in the sales process and you're actually beginning to define things a bit more than you would ordinarily do to try and mitigate? We try to steer clear of, you know, giving work away for free. And so it's a fine balance of identifying the needs in the sales process without 
investing too much of our team's time to do that. So we might start, for example, with a one or two week like tech discovery that and like just, you know, just general strategy and alignment session to kick off the project. And then the team sort of scales up from there. So maybe for the first two weeks of the project, everyone's on like a little bit lower dedication. Yeah. And then spin up, we just kind of that the price changes. And in terms of like the table that you're looking at, at least I am in my head. So the team scales up and then you're kind of going full steam ahead on whatever was discovered in the beginning of the engagement. But you're right. I mean, sometimes people come to the table and say, hey, I have all these things and I'm ready to go. And we'll say, well, that's awesome. Um, let's talk through those and let's make sure that we're in alignment and how comfortable are you if those things change? Because they probably will. Yeah. And so there's a lot of education up front that needs to happen and then along the way as well. Yeah. So in your experience then, where does this kind of fall down? Have you got any stories where you tried this approach, but it didn't work or the client was still disappointed or, you know, the PM still felt like they'd been screwed over? <laughs> like. Because it sounds great. but Yeah, and it's not a silver bullet. Like I will say it takes it takes a team that has maturity around it. So, you know, if someone's really new to Agile or um, they aren't, you know, if the team hasn't worked together for an extended period of time, there right. might be why you wouldn't choose this. Or, you know, if you have a really defined scope and it's more waterfall in nature, that's fine. You don't need to kind of retrofit anything. But where where things have sucked in the past is, when we try to, I would almost say on the opposite end, where we try to move away from how we build products best and how we're optimized and try to fit it into the client's process in a way that ends up hurting us. And I don't want to, don't want to sound like we're, we're too rigid to collaborate because I do think there's always, always a marriage and compromise between two groups coming together mm. in an agency setting. But it allows the project manager to be very empowered to um, suggest things for the for the benefit of the product versus being afraid to do that if it's more fixed scope because there's always a fear that like well if I recommend this it's going to totally you know blow up yeah. um, what we're working on and so this prevents that yeah yeah there can be yeah as a project manager you can sometimes I mean we want to be strategic and we want to do the right thing but sometimes actually delivering on time on budget within the defined scope becomes more important to us which I think is you know, it's a really sad place to be in if we're not actually doing the best thing for the client. Yeah. And I think a, a really good thing for us when we started to go through this is there's obviously going to be some legal review um, between the client team and your team. And that really forced us to think about the language that we're using and how that translates into like a legally binding relationship. And so just being willing to to try this out, maybe on an internal project first, of course, you're not going to bill yourself for that, but think about how you could apply this to something that isn't client facing at first and just what that model would mean for your team and, you know, experiment and ask questions along the way, maybe run some retrospectives too and say, you know, how can we make this better? Talking to the developers and designers to see if they've been exposed to this type of relationship in the past. Because I can tell you... <laughs> It feels better for them not to be beholden to a tightly knit scope that a lot of times they don't even know about until they're on the project. And that just is not ideal. Yeah. Talk to talk to the team who's going to be ultimately working on this and see how they feel. Yeah. So when I'm curious to know is, is kind of like a as a first step 
so for people who are listening to this thinking okay well you know maybe we should try implement something like this and get our clients to buy into it and it's probably going to have to be a, a new client but I mean you suggested trying this out with an internal team an internal project but are there certain types of projects where you found that this works better and some that it doesn't work so well yeah that's a good question we found it works really well with like multi-platform builds so in the first example of us using this, it was with a, a new startup and they wanted an iOS app, an Android app, and a web app. And there was like a hundred plus user stories and it was just it was just really big and it was almost impossible to scope it. Right. And so it works really well with a product development sort of runway that's really long. Yeah. And you can you will need a lot of people to get the work done. It doesn't work so hot for things like marketing websites or um, we don't do a lot of content creation, but there are things that are more linear in nature that maybe this isn't the right solution for. And that's fine. I'm not saying it should apply to everything. But if you have a general idea of how much you can get done or how much you can dedicate someone over a week or a month, then you can kind of apply this to your business and and see if it, it might be a good fit. Mm. Um, a lot of this does, it, it does require a team that's used to working together to some degree that, you know, can sort of self-organize around business goals and collaborate together. And then obviously on the client side, having someone who's able to make decisions is, is key. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think what, what I like about kind of what you just said there, and I think is really helpful. is just this idea of, Hey, like, you need to form the teams and you talked about, you know, people need to be, it's great when they've worked together before, when they understand how this works. So actually maybe one of the first steps is forming some teams. And I like the idea of working on internal projects. So get people to work on an internal project to see how this could work. Like how much work can people complete in, you know, in a month, in two months, in three months? What's the kind of, how does that, how does that play out? Like bearing in mind that, you know, things don't go to plan always. Often we have to do some rework, but that's part of the process. But actually trying to work out, okay, create some pods, work out how much they can deliver. And then you can start selling that into a client is, hey, look, this is what the kind of thing that we think we might be able to produce in three months or six months. And um, yeah, I think that's really helpful advice. Totally. And it is different. So we got a lot of inspiration from Hanno, which is um, a really amazing agency. They had a lot of resources online. I think they still do. But back about three years ago, when we were putting this together, they just published their approach to projects. And they said that they sell people by the week. And that's sort of how we started to think about these dedicated product teams which is different from, you know, just selling someone in the agency to a client and say, yeah, you can have access to this developer for two months. That does create some issues and some silos that we didn't want to, you know, bring into our business. So right. this is for a larger team than just one person. Um, yeah. It's not just body shopping. Yes. Yeah. That's firm. Yeah. So Cool. What would you say would be your your final your final thing? What would you be your your best tip for someone struggling to take this idea forward? Like if you think about some of the challenges that you've encountered along the way, what's the is there any nuggets that someone can take away to to really take this forward? I hate to boil it down to one word, but communication is key, even um, internally. Yeah, you want to make sure that your team also feels good about this. So get get all the roles in touch at the beginning stages, this contract creation, and then obviously communicate that to the client, communicate why this is good for them, communicate why this will bring value to their business and make sure it supports how you operate your team. If it, again, we have a very agile culture and it just helped to operationalize some of that. So communicating the benefits 
and the results over the activity, I think will be beneficial, but just communicate. Yeah. Sound, sound advice. Yeah. I think <laughs> it's one of those things, isn't it? Where so often we can have as management, you can have someone come up with an idea and just try and put it into action and say, Hey guys, this is the new way of doing things, but actually communicating throughout that process, getting people's buy-in. I think that's really sound advice. So Alexa, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been great having you with us. Oh, I appreciate it. And just to say, as I mentioned at the beginning, Alexa is going to be making an appearance in our upcoming course, starting in September, Mastering Digital Project Management. And if you're not sure what I'm talking about, but you know you need some PM training. Check it out. It's a seven-week crash course, uh, really, that includes a whole load of interactive elements. We've got video lessons, uh, assignments, group discussions, the option of coaching sessions too. So head to dpmschool.com and get yourself signed up before the course fills up. And if you'd like to contribute to the conversation about this, about contracting the agile way, comment on the post, head to the resources section of the digitalprojectmanager.com to join our Slack team where you'll find all kinds of interesting conversations going on. But until next time, thanks for listening. <music>